engineers have an easier time learning Japanese than language students. People who are good at languages are really good at memorization or memory tricks of like, how can I associate this word with another word I know? It doesn't work when you go from European languages to Japanese languages, you're starting from scratch. Engineers approach it differently. And the great thing about Japanese is such a structured, orderly, regular language that if you learn the rules, it all falls into place. If you try to memorize vocabulary, it's a dead end and it'll drive you crazy and never get the hang of it. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Business Success Japan podcast. This is your host, Liddy Buchelman. This podcast is made for those who want to develop or strengthen the communication skills, cultural savvy, insights into current trends and conditions, and mindsets that are essential in a Japanese business environment. The helpful, practical suggestions and engaging insights offered here provide listeners with the in depth cultural context needed to achieve their own version of success while collaborating with Japanese counterparts. In today's episode, I'll share the first half of a conversation that I had with DC Poulter. DC Poulter is the author of the mystery novel To Kill a Unicorn about Japanese culture in Silicon Valley and the Tuttle Guidebook on Kansai Ben, colloquial Kansai Japanese. He's also the editor of Japonica, a journal of Japanese culture. He previously lived in Kobe as an engineer at Kobe Steel before founding two tech startups, and he returns to Japan frequently to visit sake breweries and eat nikuman. Since we had a bit of a longer conversation, I decided to try out splitting our chat into two episodes. I'm always looking for ways to make sure this podcast is an enriching and easily accessible resource for my listeners, so please be sure to let me know what you think. Thank you, Lydia, for having me on today. It's uh, it's an honor and a pleasure to to be here. My name is DC Poulter. I, I do a lot of different things, which kind of confuses people, including myself. I started off as an engineer in Japan. That's I came to Japan in the 1980s, quite a while ago, as an engineer. But uh, after doing that for quite a while, I went back, I got my MBA, and ended up joining a startup as the person responsible for the uh, for marketing the products to the Japanese customer base. And so I've been going back and forth uh, with to, to Japan for, uh, I guess that's a few decades at this point. I married my wife who I'd worked with in Japan. And uh, I know you can't see it right now, but I'm sitting in a wonderful uh, tea house in the middle of uh, sunny Los Angeles. So kind of have a uh, Japanese life in uh, in Los Angeles. So uh, I do startups. I've built a few startups. Now I do startup investing and startup mentoring and try to help other startups get started. And then on top of that, I do uh, a fair amount of writing about a whole bunch of, of different things, including Japan. Great. So would you mind telling me a little bit more about why you decided to come to Japan in the first place? Oh, why I came? Well, uh, this was the 1980s, and it was the middle of the bubble years. 88 uh, was probably right at the at the height. There were, you know, it was easy to get a job. I already had a job. I was working in the defense industry as as an engineer doing rocket design. But yeah, I had gone to school to get a degree in uh, energy sustainability of all things. Uh, but in those days, nobody cared about energy sustainability, so the jobs were in rocket design. Uh, which instead of helping people, I was killing people. I'm like, yeah, I don't really like what I'm doing. Let's do something different. And I thought, well, what could I do is different. So uh, I just, uh, I got on an airplane. I went to Japan. I got a job teaching English. Uh, why not? Uh, it was just a way to do something different and kind of re reset. Uh, but then quickly I was able to find a job 
uh, as, as an engineer actually working on pollution reduction in steel manufacturing. And that was like right up my alley, uh, working in a research center at a Japanese company in, in Kobe. And uh, I really loved that. Um, but it was also very frustrating at the same time, you know, all the, the usual uh, gaijin frustrations we have in Japan. And because we were not regular employees, we weren't Seishine, we were a contract, you know, Keiaku Shine. There really wasn't a career path in it for me in the company. So eventually I knew I would have to, to do something else. And I said, well, enough of the engineering, I want to do the business side of things. So I knew I'd need an MBA for that. So that was my time to leave kind of full-time living in Japan, even though I've never really left it behind all these years. Yeah. And where did you end up deciding to do your MBA? I went to UCLA for that. Um, and, and the reason for that is it had a special Japanese business MBA program. I don't think they have it anymore, but they did, which was a joint program with Waseda. Uh, so the first summer was actually, it was two years. First summer was um, at ICU in Tokyo International Christian University, where it's full-time um, language intensive. So I had three, three months of language intensive, um, which was interesting. I'm trying to remember, you know, I, I already spoke. Um, Japanese fairly well. Uh, I'd worked in a Japanese office for, I guess, about four years at that point. But I spoke engineering speak <laughs> and we were studying for the MBA. So now I actually had to learn like how to how to talk like a business person instead of like an engineer. So that was kind of fun. And then we did that for three months, then back to the US and then uh, six months summer intensive plus job plus uh, a semester at Waseda. So I, I got to spend uh, part of the program at Waseda. And then my master's thesis was actually working with an American company to help them on their uh, Japanese entry strategy. So um, it, was, it was back and forth all the time. It was, it was a good transition back between the two cultures. Yeah, it's great how your education even mimicked your future career coming back and forth all the yeah. time. Yes. So how was it for you learning Japanese? You mentioned that you had been able to gain a pretty high level just working as an engineer, but did you find that relatively easy for you or was it a bit of a challenge? So that's an interesting question. I have an article coming out uh, on Tuesday. So I write articles on a weekly basis for a publication called Japonica, which you can find online. Uh, it's on it's on Medium. And uh, also, uh, we always publicize our LinkedIn and, and, um, and, and Twitter feed. And we write articles about life in Japan, Japanese culture versus American culture, uh, food, uh, travel, things like that. And we'd love to have other listeners uh, contribute articles as well. So it's not just me writing. Uh, it's a whole collection of, of uh, regular writers, and then anyone else can submit articles as well. So I'd love to have everyone's articles. Just happens, and we didn't set this up beforehand, this question, but I wrote an article that's being published on Tuesday about why engineers have an easier time learning Japanese than language students. And kind of the main point of it, and I don't want to take away your reason to read the article, but the main point is that um, most people who learn languages, I, I, and I suck at languages. I mean, I'm just like the world's worst language student. And I almost failed Spanish in high school because I just, I can't memorize. If you give me a list of 100 words to learn, they don't stick. I, I, I just can't do it. And people who are good at languages are really good at memorization or memory tricks of like, how can I associate this word with another word I know? It doesn't work when you go from European languages to Japanese languages, you're starting from scratch. Engineers approach it differently. And the great thing about Japanese is it's such a structured, orderly, regular language that you can learn rules. 
If you learn the rules, it all falls into place. If you try to memorize vocabulary, it's a dead end and it'll drive you crazy and never get the hang of it. And what I really found was all of the engineers, like so, so a good example in, in our office, there were a total of, I think about six foreigners uh, or at least European American foreigners. Three of them were engineers and three were yeah, language teachers. The language teachers all had trouble picking up the language, ironically, <laughs> and the engineers all picked it up well. Part of it, I didn't write this in the article, I think part of it is the engineers were all immersed in the daily life of having to communicate with other engineers. With language teachers, their job was teaching in English, so they were mostly speaking English all the time. But I think it really came down to a different approach to the language. And the engineers, or at least certainly the way I approached it, because I can't memorize, was I started from the kanji. I mean, you have to learn the basics, the fundamentals, and, and things like that. But then I love the kanji because kanji was so mathematical to me that it ended up becoming like learning problem solving. And everyone's like, oh my God, I have to learn a thousand kanji, 2000 kanji. It's like, no, you don't. Um, you have to learn a few radicals and then you put the radicals together and you, you end up having uh, characters. Um, and then the characters, there's easier ways to associate the characters than there are just random words. So I ended up picking up the characters very simply, and it kind of felt to me like almost mathematics. And then once I picked up the kanji, then vocabulary just all fell into place. I mean, as you know, most Japanese words are a combination of two characters. And if and you can usually, just listening to them, you can hear this character plus this character. Oh, I know what that means. And so they become very easy to remember. And I think all of the engineers approached it from a problem-solving point of view and a logic point of view, an almost mathematical point of view, instead of trying to approach it the way the, the language people do, which was language learning, let's learn grammar, let's learn vocabulary. And that's really hard to do going from a European language to Japanese language. So I was shocked that I picked it up easily because I am so bad at languages. I expected to struggle with Japanese and it was just like, oh, this is easy. There's no irregular verbs. Oh my God. There's no verb, <laughs> verb conjugations. They're just I-E-U-L-O. Oh my God, this is so easy. <laughs> and everyone else is like, how did you learn Japanese? That's such a hard language. You're like, no, it's I, it's a lot easier in Spanish for me. Yeah, I laugh when you talk about being bad at memorizing because I'm exactly the same way. And the way you described engineers <laughs> kind of breaking it down into little bits and putting them together and rearranging them in a more logical way. I wonder if I was an engineer in a past life. <laughs> At least you have a very logical problem-solving mind, even if you didn't become an engineer as a trade. Um, maybe, you, maybe you will soon, but it's kind of just a different way of approaching language study and a different way of approaching everything, really. Yeah, exactly. Because I ended up actually studying Japanese in university, but I never achieved a high level. I kind of got stuck at maybe being able to pass N3. That was about it. But after I graduated, I was able to use the Heisei method, I believe, where you learn the radicals and you put them together. So there, I do think there is a method for everybody, but it may not be the way that Japanese teachers tend to teach Japanese. So just be aware of that. Right. Absolutely. You have to find what works for you. Yeah, exactly. So then would you mind sharing a little bit more about any challenges you had later on working as almost a filter between Japanese and foreign business people? Yeah. So a lot of my job was being the person who is either doing sales with the Japanese customers or marketing to the Japanese companies. And 
Uh, and sometimes as being a consultant, like trying to figure out the strategy for selling into the Japanese market. And I think pretty much anyone who's been in that role will tell you it, it's much less about language and much more about culture. And it's about mutual understanding. And that's not about the language. You can translate that. It's not what somebody says, it's what they mean. And that's where things really get lost. And I, I can give you a good example. Uh, the company I did my MBA project for was, uh, was a US startup uh, in mechanical engineering. So it's kind of right in my field. And they made a CAD software program. They wanted to get in a Japanese market because the, the market for CAD software in Japan is probably second biggest to the US, especially in the, in the 1990s when Japan was, was taking over the world. So they did a joint venture with a big Japanese company that wanted to get into the IT space, and it was a disaster. And why was it a disaster? Well, the Japanese company said, this is CAD software, and this is what customers for CAD software want, and therefore these are the features that it needs, and this is the price we can sell it at. And it's popular in the US, so we'll assume we can sell it in, in, in Japan. And what they were kind of missing was that this software wasn't for usual CAD users, it was for the casual engineer who wasn't a CAD person to allow them to do CAD. And it's not going to have all the features, but it was also, you know, like a quarter of the cost. And the idea was to make CAD, uh, the, the benefits of CAD available to people who, you know, were not CAD professionals. That's not going to be for everybody. But the Japanese company was trying to sell it to the people who would normally be CAD users. And they're looking at it as like, this doesn't do all the things I needed to do. And then they were complaining back to the US, well, it doesn't do this, it doesn't do this, it doesn't do this, the product's not finished, Japanese customers aren't happy with it. And what the Americans didn't realize, because all they got was this list of, well, the customer asked for this, this, and this, they didn't realize what was going on and they weren't talking to customers directly. So there was this mutual incomprehension of the product was actually made for a different customer base at a different price point with a different feature set. And that's on the marketing side, that's who you need to go after. And so, yeah, there was communications back and forth, but there wasn't an understanding of both sides of what was really going on and why, and, and why that was happening. So, and, and a lot of that was because the, the Japanese joint venture partner, the way it was set up was the Americans were responsible for the software and the Japanese were responsible for the, 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 for the Japanese business. And so there weren't any Americans in the Japanese office who were really seeing what was going on. They're like, oh yeah, these guys are pros. They, you know, they've set up a whole company. We don't, you know, we're a startup. We, we've only got 50 people. We can't dedicate a full-time person there. Nobody spoke Japanese, so you wouldn't put them there. And it is just this huge wasted opportunity of, you know, now there's this 25, 30 person company that is not succeeding because they're selling the wrong product to the wrong audience and nobody is understanding that and again it's it's not about the language the people there were speaking you know really you know really good english but they weren't communicating what was going on and why it was going on and the americans weren't putting enough effort into understanding the situation and they were just like okay you guys know the market you take care of it so i think that's very common i worked in the automotive industry as well and i you know i saw that same sort of thing all the time and i'm sure it's the same in every industry yeah. So how did you go about kind of identifying those points where people weren't on the same page? Yeah. So I think the first thing is you need to have an American or, or you know, somebody from the head office in the Japanese office. So they're on the ground and they can represent the head office's point of view, 
email just doesn't cut it. And ideally, you have somebody from the Japanese office who's going back and forth, uh, if not stationed at the headquarters, is going back and forth so that the people know each other and that they're really communicating with each other instead of just sending, here's what the customer said, we need these features, is a real understanding of what's going on in the market. Um, this is not unique to Japanese versus American culture. I see the exact same thing happening all the time at big companies where it's the sales team versus the engineering team, where the salespeople will be out with the customers and they'll say, customer asked for this, this, and this, and it goes back to the engineers and the engineer's like, well, that's stupid, we're not doing that. They don't need that. They don't, you know, they're not understanding. The salespeople need to sell the product they have. And so my solution to that is I always take the engineering team to the trade shows and I always get the engineering team in on the customer calls. I don't have a separate, uh, you can do this when you're a small company. Um, I avoid trying to have a separate sales engineering team, which is part of the sales team, because they end up in their own kind of closed world. And the engineers are like, they're making the product for a customer that they don't know, and they're imagining what the customer needs, wherein these guys are like, well, I got a product, but it's not what the customer needs. And I really want to have a lot more cross-fertilization. And what I would find, if you take the engineers to the trade shows, um, the somebody would come up to the booth and say, can you do this? And you know, sales guy or me would be like, "Yeah, sorry, you know, we that's not a feature we have. Our, our competitors might have it because they're they're trying to do something different." And, and, and the engineer will say, "Well, what are you trying to accomplish?" And the guy or the girl will 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 say, "Okay, well, this is actually what I need to do." And the engineer's lies like up is like, "Oh, yeah, we can do that." We can't build that feature that you asked for. That would be a year's worth of work. But what you want to do, I can set that up, you know, with this with this hack. I can have that ready for you in a week. And and it would turn out, yeah, what they wanted to do was easy to do. What they were asking for, because that's how the competitors did it, would be like a huge change in how the product works. So that cross-fertilization of different functions, and whether that's between the Japan office and the US office, or whether that's between the sales team and the marketing team and the engineering team, I think it's key. And without that, everybody ends up in their own silos and you end up with just communications not working. So if somebody finds themselves in a difficult situation where maybe it's a little too early or for whatever reason, perhaps a pandemic, it's hard to cultivate that cross-fertilization. Do you have any tips for people who have to try to communicate these potential communication breakdowns or differences directly? Yeah. So there needs to be somebody who's listening for this. And, you know, ideally, even if you can't be in person, Zoom has kind of changed the world too, that we can have a lot more communications somewhat face-to-face, -face, even if we're not going out drinking together, which is kind of key to kind of building relationships in Japan. But part of the role of the boss, I mean, everyone says, oh, we hate middle managers. They're just a way, they're just getting in the, in the middle and they're wasting time. But that's really the job of the middle managers is being that interface between the different groups, being a product manager or project manager, and really um, seeing what's going on in the different functions and make sure that everybody's on the same page. And that takes a good listener who is really attuned to the problems that can develop instead of just like putting together spreadsheets and saying everybody has to do it in this time. So um, I, I think it's a, you know, it, it's a leader who has, uh, is good at listening, is good at empathy, um, and is really listening between the lines to what's going on. 
And I've heard of a lot of situations where people are kind of hired as a cultural bridge, so hired as a kakehashi within their company, but they may not necessarily have the same access or influence as those middle managers may. So would you have any advice for them in particular if they're trying to navigate this balance and trying to maybe inform two different teams about things that they don't have firsthand experience with? Yeah, so uh, obviously it's a little bit tricky that you end up with these kind of support roles where their job is to build those bridges and help facilitate those discussions, but they're actually not the ones doing it themselves. They're not the managers, they're not on on, on the frontline teams. And it's an important role, but I think the role is training other people as opposed to trying to do the things themselves. So making sure that those managers are listening for these things, being there in the middle, going to the meetings and kind of taking somebody inside and say, hey, you know, um, the guys in Japan are telling you they're interested. What that really means is we're not interested. And if you really want to find out what's going on, you need to take them out to, you know, drinking together and then kind of, you know, so kind of understanding the culture becomes important, but it becomes important in teaching the other people what to do as opposed to being on the, on the front lines and doing it themselves, I think. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense and sounds a lot more sustainable than trying to manage all that yourself. So then Going back to your experiences working and living in Japan, and you mentioned that you were there in the 80s during the boom period as well. What are some ways that you've seen Japan change? Is there anything that stands out to you in particular? So I was just back in Japan last week for a couple of weeks in Kobe, Osaka, and then down in uh, Kyushu, Fukuoka, Saga. A wonderful tour. And then previously, I was back in November for, for three weeks on a sake brewing tour where we went to Nagano and uh, Niigata. And then you know, my in-laws are in, in uh, Kobe, so we always go back there as well. So I had a chance to see both the city life and the, the more rural or suburban areas. And what really surprised me, it had been three years uh, because during the pandemic, non-Japanese were, were not allowed in. So it had been about three years since I'd been back to Japan again. And I started to see this before, but I, I really noticed it as I went out to the, uh, to, to the rural areas myself. So when I was in Japan, I lived in a fairly large suburb of Kobe. Uh, called Seishin, and a lot of factories there. I think in the entire town of Seishin, or neighborhood of Seishin, there were four foreigners living there. <laughs> and three of them worked with me in the office. And like one guy who worked in the, in the HP factory, and we saw each other on the baseball field. And that was it, right? Everybody else was Japanese. I think there were a few Chinese people scattered in, in the engineering teams, but that was about it. Now, and it was, it was like, oh my God, it, you know, you walk around and everyone's like, oh, Gaijin, Gaijin. You <laughs> felt like a star, which was kind of, it was fun in a way. It gets old quickly, but it's kind of fun in a way. Probably still your experience where, where you are on an island of, off of uh, Nagasaki. But I was very surprised traveling around Japan over the past year that I saw foreigners everywhere. I saw English signs and Chinese and Korean signs everywhere. Even we went to a, uh, an onsen in the middle of nowhere, in the mountains, and I don't know, a quarter of the staff, I think, were Indian or Southeast Asian. Uh, I'm like, wow, even here in like the most traditional place where it's all about, you know, 
culture and serving people, a lot of the staff is non-Japanese now. So that was just a huge change for me. And, um, and yeah, and, and seeing English everywhere. We still, I mean, as, as non-Japanese, we, we can't help sometimes laughing at some of the <laughs> English we see, but it is 10 times better than it was before, maybe 100 times better. There's, there's English signs everywhere. There's the odd mistake that, you know, the good for a laugh, but um, it's shocking actually how, how good it's become. Uh, maybe people are learning more English. Maybe they're just using Google Translate better, but you can get around a lot easier than you could before. Whether you can talk to people and have a conversation, I don't know if that has changed, but just the foreign influence, both people living there and tourists and travelers coming in is just 180 degrees different from what it was when I was there. Yeah, it's great to hear that the accessibility has improved so much. <laughs> so let me tell you a little story. When I moved to Japan, I lived in Tokyo at first when I was teaching English. And you go in, I, I lived one stop from Shinjuku Station, and there, there was no English signs. And there was also no pass cards then, right? You know, the, the IC card. So if you wanted to get on a train and I had to take like three or four trains every day because they sent me out to work at different offices every day, you would have the, the big board. The big boards are still there. Nobody looks at them anymore. There's the big board. You had to figure out where you were, what station you want to get to, how much that would cost. So then you would buy your ticket in the vending machines. And all of that was in kanji. There was no English. Trying to figure out whether it was a local train or express train or, uh, or super express train. Not to mention that Shinjuku has something like 16 different lines, some of which are overlap each other. When I started working there, they gave us a book. I mean, it's actually a published book with the main train stations in Tokyo and the different platform, the different lines on the different platforms so that you knew which platform to go to to get to your train. Now there's signs in English. You use your, you know, your IC card to just tap. That's so much easier than, than buying the tickets. And you can use Google, uh, Google Maps to tell you, you know, go 50 meters and get on this train right here. It's like, wow, it's so much easier to get around even, even if you don't speak any Japanese than it, than it was before. Plus, there's signs everywhere in English and, and Chinese and Korean. It's just so much easier. Yeah, for sure. I'm just surprised that there was actually a book for it. There was actually a book for Tokyo and I needed it in Shinjuku. I mean, how were you going to find the train to get to Ueno? Well, actually Ueno is easy because you, you could just take the Yamanote Sen, but you know, some other random place like Toranamon, how would you know from Nakano Sakawe to Toranamon, how would you get there? And how much would it cost? And what platform did you need to get to from the subway to the uh, Soba Sen or you know, Chuo Sen or whatever it is? Yeah, I would have definitely been doomed back in the day. <laughs> Sometimes I still managed to get lost even with Google Maps. Now, part of that was the fun, right? It was an adventure. It was like, oh my God, I have to plan my day of how I'm going to get from Nakano Sakawe to Toranamon. I have to work it out. Now it's just so much easier. It's it's good. It's easier. You don't get lost, but it's kind of taking the, the adventure out of it. that you enjoyed this week's episode. Be sure to subscribe if you haven't already to hear part two of our conversation as soon as it goes live. You definitely won't want to miss it. Also, please let me know what you think about splitting these longer interviews into two episodes. My goal is to make this podcast a resource that meets the needs of my listeners, so I'm always eager to learn from you how I can do that better. 
If you enjoyed today's episode, go ahead and share it with a friend, colleague, or connection on LinkedIn to help spread the perspectives and information shared in the podcast. And please remember to go ahead and subscribe or follow on whatever platform you're using and leave a rating and review if you enjoy the podcast. If you would like to support the podcast, there are a few things that you can do. You can check out my coffee page where you can contribute once monthly or even help raise money for a new mic that will hopefully improve the audio quality of future interviews. You can find the link to do so in the description of this episode. As always, feel free to email me at businesssuccessjapan at gmail.com if you have any other questions, comments, or suggestions for future episodes or interview topics. I'd love to hear from you directly, so if you'd like to leave a voice message, you can find a link to do so in the description as well. But for now, remember that the more you learn, the more confident you will become as you explore all of the opportunities Japan has to offer you. Until next time, mata kondo. Thank you.